Welcome to another edition of the Culture Class Podcast, uh, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, get to learn about other cultures uh, and how they do things in other parts of the world. My name is Nosa Iyari. Welcome to another episode. For people watching me on YouTube, please forgive my what do I call this? My whole thing. Um, I mean, I've been we've been locked down for a few weeks now. I haven't really had time to go, you know, cut my hair or shave or do anything. So I'm I'm all over the place. So Dario looks a lot nicer than me. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. I have a very special guest on the podcast today. Um, I mean, my guest, he came to my university to speak. This was while I was up in American University in Washington, D.C. in late 2017. Uh, A few months after he came to speak, I actually started this podcast, I think, in 2018. And from the very first episode, from episode one, I've been trying to get you on this podcast. So I've been chasing you for pretty much two years. So I really appreciate (laughs) the fact that we have the chance to come speak. My pleasure. Yeah, and Daryl, Daryl Davis, it's a is a very interesting character. I mean, he's been on all different platforms. He's been on, you know, the Joe Rogan podcast. He's been he has a TED Talk. He's been on CNN. He's been at Google Talks, like all these places. He has a book that came out, I think, in 1998 or 99, clandestine. Uh, you, you've given all these speeches about the same topic uh, all over the world, and of course, the topic about your interactions with members of the KKK. You particularly being a black man. And, you know, we'll just try to, you know, peel back some of the layers about how that happened exactly and, you know, what you learned in the process. But first, before we go there, how are you doing, man? Like, how's the pandemic uh, treating you? Uh, corona lockdown. Well, <laughs> uh, where I am, uh, you, you were in D.C., so you know Montgomery County, Maryland. Uh, oh, we do. just, yeah, we just started uh, phase one of a reopening just the day before yesterday. All the other counties are already like in phase two. So we were, you know, one of the hardest hit, us and uh, Pri- uh, Prince George's County. Got so we're, we're beginning to come out. Got it. Well, you're a musician, right? So I can imagine that, you know, it's not as bad as someone who doesn't have anything to do and like watches Netflix all day. You can maybe try to write new songs or, you know, oh, <laughs> or things like you that. You don't know how bad it is. <laughs> oh, Let my tell God. You. I <laughs> so mean, you, you live for the crowd, huh? Uh, well, you know, when you're used to being on the road, constantly mm. out playing in nightclubs or festivals, uh, you know, from city to city, you're always on tour or something like that. Or, you know, you saw me giving a lecture. I, I do as many uh, music gigs as I do lectures. I'm never home. I've not been home in my house uh, this many consecutive days in a row since I lived at home with my parents as a little kid. Oh, my God. <laughs> <You know>? so, <laughs> That's a long time ago. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's a readjustment. I love my home, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's definitely a readjustment, you know, staying home. But you're right. I am working on my second book. And... Uh, I started a podcast too, and you know, okay. So I'm I'm keeping busy. Okay, okay, okay. We'll get to all that stuff. So it's, it's good to know. Uh, let's talk about you. Like you mentioned, your parents. You know, a few seconds ago. Uh, from what I understand, your your parents or your father was a diplomat, right? Th- that is correct. Yes. And, and you grew up in the D.C. area. So talk no, to me about. No, I, I I grew up all over the world. My oh, my okay. father my father started out. He was one of the first uh, black Secret Service agents in this country. Mm. Uh, the Secret Service hired five black people at one time. I think, I think I remember that. He, he was hired by J. Edgar? No, no, no. J. Edgar was, uh, he, uh, J. Edgar would have nothing to do with blacks. Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah, Hoover was a big-time racist, and Hoover was, J. Edgar Hoover, was the uh, head of the FBI. Secret Service is another uh, organization. Oh, protects the president. Uh, gotcha. Yes, and uh, they, um, his, their boss was a fellow named Harry Anslinger. And Harry Anslinger hired five black people at one time. My father was one of those. And then later he uh, joined the uh, Foreign Service, U.S. State Department. 
and that's when we started traveling overseas in 1961 when I was three years old. I was born in 1958. Mm. And so I spent a good 10 years, first 10 years of my formative life living all over the world. I lived, I lived 10 years in Africa. I lived in Europe, um, visited many countries in between. When you combine my travels as a child with my parents, combined to my travels now as an adult musician performing around the world, I've been in a total of 57 different countries, wow. six continents. So literally starting at an early age, I was exposed to many, many different cultures and religions, ethnicities, things like that. And when I went to school overseas in the 1960s, you know, uh, uh, kindergarten, elementary school, things like that, um, you know, you're there for two years in the country, then you come home. You're here for a little bit, and then you go back over to another country, come home after two years. Oh, that's how the forest progress. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So every two years, I'd come home. But do, but during those two-year stints, when I was in different countries, I would attend you know school over there, of course. And my classes were filled with people from all over the world. Anybody who had an embassy in that country, all of their children, we all went to the same school. Mm. So my classes had Nigerians, Italians, Japanese, German, French, Swedish. Um, it, it was like a United Nations of little kids. Nice. And when I would come home after my dad's assignment, I would either be in all black schools or black and white schools here in my own country, depending upon whether I'm in the still segregated school or the newly integrated school, but the, you know, black and white. And there, there was not the amount of diversity here that I had overseas or like we have today. You know, today you walk into a classroom, it looked like my overseas class. So literally, when I was overseas at that time, I was living 12 years into the future because that scenario had not come here to my own country. Fox. So when it finally came here, I was already prepared. But, you know, my, my peers and my, my classmates were not. So, you know, I would experience uh, some racism and things like that. And that caused me to form a question in my mind at the age of 10 after getting hit by rocks and bottles being the only black scout in a parade uh, by just a small group of, of white spectators, not everybody, just a small group. I didn't understand it, why I was being singled out and targeted until my parents later explained to me what racism was. And Wait, even then... Let, let me expand I'm sorry to cut you short. I want sure. you to expand on that particular incident. And this was something okay. you also um, spoke about when you came to give a speech at my university. Like, you were in the Scouts, right? You were in the States. And you guys were having a parade. And I would imagine you were, like, what, 10? I was 10 years old, you right? 10, and you, got, you were in the Boy Scouts. You were having a Boy Scout parade. And all of a sudden, were you in front or you were in the line somewhere? And you started seeing rocks coming through. Yeah, and I started feeling teacher. the rocks, like the seeing. Them, yeah. Oh my. <laughs> and the teacher came to shield you away. And your initial thought being a 10 year old was like, why do these people hate the scout? Like exactly. you hadn't exactly. understood the concept of racism. And you, you just thought that, oh, these guys don't like gout. And it, right. eventually you went home and your dad sat you down, your parents sat you down and explained to you what racism was. What was that experience like your dad telling you? What exactly <sighs> did he tell you? How did he try to explain racism to a 10 year old kid? <laughs> You know, it was, it was, he, he did a good job, but, you know, because I, I always went to my parents, you know, whenever I had issues, um, but I had no precedent for this issue. I'd never experienced anything like this before. So, the, you know, I'm trying to, to justify why these people were attacking me. There was no reason. But the problem that I was having was I'd already been around plenty of, um, of white people, whether they were French, German, you know, Swiss, Australian, or even, you know, fellow Americans. Did you ever experience had, any bouts of racism abroad? No, no, mm. no, no. So I, I this had was no the 60s. Yeah, this was 1968, mm. to be precise. Mm. And uh, since I never had any experience with this, and the people who were doing this looked just like my friends, you know, that I had, 
I had no reason to believe that the color of my skin made any difference to anybody because I'd never been treated like that before. So I'm thinking my parents are making this up. Oh, wow. I don't don't understand why they're making this up because, you know, they'd never lied to me before. Mm. But and, and, and why are they joking about my getting hurt? You know, this is not a joke. You know, it can't be because of the color of my skin. That's stupid. And of course, it was stupid, you know, but I could not understand it because I'd never had any experience with it. It's sort of like if if you're walking down the street and the first dog you encounter is a is a uh, let's say a collie, nice little collie, and that collie bites the heck out of you, and that's your first experience with the dog. Two things are going to happen. One, you're going to be leery of most dogs, mm. and you're certainly going to be leery of all collies. Mm especially if you're a little kid. But if you've been around dogs before and, you know, some bite, some don't bite, and you have that experience, you realize, hey, you know what? It's just that dog that's misbehaving, not all dogs. So if I'd had, if I'd grown up here in my own, in my own country, and, and, uh, and I've been to all these black schools, and my first encounter with white people was this experience, then probably I would not be doing this work today. But since I had a precedent of getting along with people from all over the world, people that I knew, people that I would meet, how is it that I met these people and they're attacking me? It, it made no sense. Got it. So my parents did a good job explaining it, but I did not do a good job understanding it because it was, it, there was no logic to it. I understand logic completely. I don't understand stupidity. Mm. Okay, okay. So your parents explained it to you. And right. I guess that was, you know, the period well, where you formed. Well, what happened was that they explained it to me. And I believe, believe it or not, no, sir, I had never heard the word racism. When they mm. said that word, I didn't understand it. I, never I mean, it. you were 10, so, you know. I was 10, but I'd never been around it, mm. you know. So um, I did not believe them. I did not believe them. I didn't know why they were lying, but they were lying. So Is that when you formed the question, well, how, uh, how can you hate me? When you no, be, no because me? I didn't believe they hated me. Mm -hmm. I I thought there was some other reason that was being kept secret from me because what they were telling me made made no sense. So shortly thereafter, uh, maybe a month, two months later, um, it was April 4th, Martin Luther King was assassinated Mm. that same year, 1968. And then just like what we're going through right now with the uprising, different cities burning all over this country, that happened. And I remember it very well at age 10, 1968. Um, When I saw this, then I began to realize my parents had told me the truth. This thing called racism, it does exist. I don't know why it exists, but it does exist. I don't know why people hate one another. But that's when I formed the question, how can you hate when you don't even know me? So for the next 52 years, I've been looking for the answer. Wow, That's, uh, that's a particularly long time. Um, but that's a very interesting question. That how can you hate me when you do not even know me? And I relate to that in some sense because that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast, right? I had traveled to all these places. My dad was in the Nigerian Air Force, so I had been mm-hmm. all around the country in Nigeria. Uh, eventually, when I got older, I had gone to a bunch of countries, especially particularly when I was in grad school, being in grad school, schooling in D.C., which is a melting pot of a lot of cultures from around the world. I was like, my plan was to, hey, you know, get into all these cultures. Let's see if we can understand each other. And through that, you know, break down some of the divides that exist between societies and between cultures. So I can relate to that statement, maybe not as extreme as you do, but going from racism to like the KKK, when did you get the first realization that, oh, there was, that there is, there is racism, but there, there is a group of people who promulgate racism. Specialize in, in it. <laughs> or specialize in racism in a physical sense in the society. When did you, you know, know KKK? Well, what was that situation? Well, I learned about them early on, and I began, but, well, when I formed that question, nobody seemed to, to have a, a satisfactory answer for me. Well, why do people do this? Well, Daryl, you know, some people are just like that, or that's just how it is, you know, that kind of thing. 
but that was not good enough for me. And so I began buying, you know, people feel that they're superior to one another. And so I began buying books on black supremacy, on white supremacy. Self-study. Yeah, on anti-Semitism, on the Ku Klux Klan, on the Nazis in Germany, on the neo-Nazis over here. I wanted to learn about this because I knew people were not born that way. So where did it come from? Where is it going? How can it be addressed? Uh, How old were you at this time when you were studying? I I, I was going into my teenage years, 12, 13. and, And I've kept on, ever since then, I've kept on buying stuff on that. I have a vast library on this. And I've read all these books because, see, there were no courses, you know, like Race 101 or something like that. There's still no course like that. And uh, so I had to self-educate. So I read all these books, and all these books would talk about the problem, but they never address why it happens. Yeah. So um, I, I graduated from Howard University in Washington, D.C. in uh, 1980 with my degree in music and performance. And I, uh, I be- you know, became a, f- a professional full-time musician. And a few years later, country music had, had made a comeback in this country. A lot of uh, bars and clubs had switched the, f- the music format from top 40 to country music. So if you wanted to work full-time, you know, you played country. So I, uh, I joined a country band, and I was the only black person in the band, and usually the only black person wherever we played. So we had this one gig uh, one night up in uh, Frederick, Maryland, about an hour or so outside of D.C., a little, little over an hour outside of D.C., and there was a lounge there called the Silver Dollar Lounge, which was located in a truck stop area in the bottom of this truck stop motel. Now, the Silver Dollar Lounge was known as an all-white lounge, not that black people could not go there. I mean, there were no signs that said no no black people, anything like that. Uh, but black people did not go there on their own choice because they were not welcome. You know, and when you go somewhere where you're not welcome and alcohol is being served, it's not a good idea, <laughs> you know? So the band was an all-white band, and they they had played there before. I'd never even been there before. So here I am in this place, and uh, we played. We, you know, we, we're doing three sets of music. So right after the first set, we took a break, and we came off the stage, going you know, walking to go sit down somewhere. And this uh, white guy came up behind me and put his arm around my shoulder. Now, I don't know anybody in this lounge. I've never been there before. And I see the whole band up ahead of me walking, so I'm, I'm turning around to see you know, who's touching me. And it's this guy, and he's he's quite a bit older than me, maybe 15, 18 years older. And he says to me, um, I like your all's music. And I said, thank you. And I shook his hand. He was very friendly. And he pointed at the stage, and he said, I've seen this here band before, but I ain't never seen you before. Where, where did you come from? And I said, well, yeah, you probably did see them because they told me, you know, they played here before. But I'm new. I just joined the band, you know, a couple months ago, my first time here. He says, well, man, I sure like your piano playing. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Now, I was not a by his statement, but I was I was surprised. I was very curious, you know, that this man who's older than me did not know the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's piano playing. Mm. And so I wasn't trying to be to be smart, but I said to him, I, you know, out of surprise, I said, "Well, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play?" And he says, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, Jerry Lee Lewis learned 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 from the same people I did, from black blues and boogie woogie piano players." Mm. I said, "That's where rock and roll and rockabilly came from." Oh, oh no, I no, probably no. upset him. <laughs> well, it, it it didn't upset him, but he thought I was joking. Mm. He said, um, "Oh no, 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 no." Jerry didn't get anything from black people. I never heard no black man play piano like that, except for you. So I'm thinking, okay, well, this guy, don't tell me he never heard a little Richard or Fast Domino. You know, all, all he knows is Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, and so he thinks I'm the I'm the only black person that plays like this. So I told him, I said, look, man, I said, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a friend of mine. And he is. I said, he's told me himself where he learned how to play. And the guy did not believe that Jerry Lee learned anything from black people. He did not believe that I knew Jerry Lee. But he was fascinated with me, and he wanted me to come back to his table, and he was going to buy me a drink. Now, I don't drink alcohol, but I got a cranberry juice, and he paid the waitress 
And he, then he took his glass and he clinks my glass and cheers me. And he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down, had a drink with a black. Now I'm really curious, like, you know, what's going on here? I'm, I'm not tuning in to any bigotry, anything like that. I'm just figuring, you know, this guy, I don't know where he's been. He's been, you know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't tune into any kind of, you know, bigotry or prejudice because the guy was so friendly. I mean, he threw his arm around my shoulder. He's buying me a drink. He wants to hang out with me. He likes my music. So I had no reason to, to really focus in on him. And um, I said, you know, he, when he said this was the first time he'd ever sat down and had a drink with a black man, I looked at him, I said, I said well, why? I'm, I'm curious because in my time on this earth, I sat down with literally thousands of white people or anybody else and had a meal, a beverage, a conversation. How is it this man who's older than me much had never older. sat, mm. much older than me, had never sat down with the blacks? I, I'm curious. I said, why? And at first he didn't answer me. He looked down at the table and I asked him again and his buddy elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. And he said to me, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. But now I burst out laughing at him because I did not believe him. Because like I told you, I've read every book written on the Ku Klux Klan, back and forth. And none of my books talked about how a Klansman would come up and embrace some black guy and want to hang out and buy him a drink. It doesn't work that way. So why would I believe that, right? So I'm laughing. He goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, and hands me his Klan membership card. Oh, they have membership cards. Oh, yeah. yeah Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, and you pay your dues also. Oh, yeah, so, I knew that one. Yeah, we have to have a membership card. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that makes sense. You know, it makes, you, it makes you feel important, right? You know? Yeah, I guess so. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, so he hands me this card, and I look at it, and instantly I recognize the Ku Klux Klan insignia. It's the red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center. And um, I stop laughing because I realize this thing that I'm holding in my hand is for real. Now, so this is a real clan card, so this must be a real clansman. And I stopped laughing, and I gave it back to him. And we talked about the clan, talked about some other things. But he wanted me. He gave me his phone number, and he wanted me to call him and let him know the next time we were to come there and play. Call him in, in advance, so he could round up his friends, meaning his clan, his clansmen and clanswomen, because he wanted to bring them to to see this black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Now, I'm not wow. sure whether he called me a black man to his friends or not. I don't know what he called mm-hmm. me. But nonetheless, he, he wanted to impress them as well because he was just so impressed. This, you know, this was a novelty for him. And so I said, okay, I'll call you. And I would call him every six weeks. You know, we were on a rotation with other bands. We'd come back to that club, you know, for Friday and Saturday. So I'd call him on a Wednesday and Thursday and say, hey, man, you know, I'm, I'm down at the Silver Dollar. Come on out. He would come both nights, Friday and Saturday, every time we came. And he'd bring his friends. And, uh, you know, I'd get to meet some of them when uh, on the break. I, I usually, you know, go over to his table, say hello. Some of them would hang there because they were interested, they were curious about me, want mm-hmm. to meet me, talk to me. Others, they'd see me coming, they'd get up real quick and take off and go to another part of the room. In other words, they did not want to meet me, they did not want to talk they to me. They want to be in your presence. <laughs> right, just want to look at me, that's it. You know, so uh, that, you know, that was okay. I, I didn't chase how many down. How many friends do you think he came with each time? Was it like a dozen people? Half no, a no, dozen? no, 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 no. Um, mm-hmm. It may have been, you know, anywhere from four or five, maybe six. Well, and you, like, he, obviously all of them were clans people. Yeah, and oh, yeah. How, how, weren't you, like, you know, didn't you have any concerns about going back to a location where you know five or six confirmed clan people? Like, no, no, I, I didn't really think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um. I guess because he had been so friendly to me. I mean, I'm, I'm well aware, you know, that they're dangerous people. I'm well aware of their history and a lot of the things that they have done. Of course, I read all the books, you know, I knew the reports, all that kind of stuff. But I figured, you know, this guy, um, he 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 was more interested in my music than he was about, you know. Okay, so music was a unifying now, factor. Or the, right. You know. Now, I tell you, I'm not, but I will tell you this. I will tell you this because I've, I've, had, I've, I've had a fight in that place before and I had to hurt somebody. Um, if I had gone in there, 
for the first time or whatever, just to hang out and dance, who would I be dancing with? Mm. He would have had a problem with that. And there would have been a fight. So as I came in as a musician, I'm doing a job. And I'm playing the kind of music that he and the other people that he brought with him relate. So while they may not like, they like the music that I'm producing. But to sit down and talk with me gave them an opportunity to see me as a human being. And it it forced them, it forced them when they go home to have to recount that experience. And then they have a cognitive dissonance because they realize they just just had a conversation, a social conversation with a black, and he was a nice guy, and he said things that made sense, but he's black. But he he made sense. He he spoke our language, but he's black. So So it was almost almost like the reverse of what you experienced when you were 10, when you had white friends abroad and coming to the U.S. and, you know, experiencing racism from white people. They had, were coming from a a cognitive dissonance. I was having the cognitive dissonance, right. Okay. Exactly, exactly. Because, Because what you knew did not fit what was real. You know, and so they had to struggle with that. Um, I wasn't struggling with it at that point. And um, I think the fact that because as a child, I had been exposed to so many different cultures, uh, things, you know, that I would never practice, that I would never do, but that was the culture of wherever I, wherever I was, I accepted it. So these people were just another culture to me. And I, and I did not fear them as perhaps I would have how I'd grown up here my whole life and experienced racism as a young child. You know, I just, I just viewed them kind of different. It's just kind of different kind of people, you know? So uh, anyway, um, I just, you know, I didn't realize it that night that I, I, I'd even quit the band later that year. And I went back playing rock and roll and blues and R&B and whatever else was going on. Or you still keep in touch with... Uh... No, I, no, no, no. I didn't keep in touch with him at all because, mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I had a day off. So I go up to Frederick and hang out with the clan. It wasn't like that. Got it was, it. you know, I, I only kept in con- contact with him when I was playing at that club. I and this was the 80s. And... So obviously there wasn't yeah. like internet or anything like that. Exactly. Got it. So, um... You know, I, I lost track of him. I, I had no reason to keep in contact with. But then it dawned on me, it occurred to me, Daryl, man, the answer to your question that you've been seeking since the age of 10, it fell into your lap and you didn't even realize. How it was do you serendip- hit me when yeah. you don't even know me? Yeah, the answer the answer fell in my lap. Mm. You know, it was serendipity because who better to ask to get that answer than to ask somebody who would go so far as to join an organization that practices hating people who don't look like them and who don't believe as they believe. You need to get back in contact with that Klansman and get him to set you up with the Klan leader here in Maryland and sit him down and ask him that question. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? That's where you get your answer because he would know. He practices hating people like, like, like me. So I decided I'm going to write a book and I'm going to start here in Maryland where I live. I'm not from Maryland. I'm from Chicago originally, but I'm going to start here in Maryland where I live, interview the Klan leader and some members here, then I'll go up north, go down south, go to the Midwest, go to the West, interview other ones, and put it all in a book. None of my books uh, in my basement on my shelves uh, on the Klan were written by white authors. I mean, were written by black authors. They all were written by white authors, except for two. Uh, two black authors wrote books that dealt with the Klan, but not from sitting down face-to-face and interviewing them. Each author talked about how he escaped a lynching, one in the 1930s and one in the 1940s, but not from interviewing the lynchers. That's what I wanted to do, interview my prospective lynchers. Okay. So, so I decided, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So, um, my mother passed away and cause I was getting ready to get into it and my mother had passed away. So I had to deal with all of that. And I put it, I put it on hold for a little while. And then when I finally got back to it, I, I dug around, dug around. So, you know, I, I long since, you know, um, moved stuff around, didn't know where that guy's phone number was or whatever. I scrabbled on a piece of little paper. I found, I found it and I called the number. It had been disconnected. So I had to track the guy down. Turns out he had moved and he didn't have a phone, but I got an address on 
phone. And so I had no way of, of contacting him. You know, we didn't have email or texting or, you know, none of that stuff. And so um, I had no way of letting him know that I wanted to talk with. So I went to his apartment on, on this address that I got, unannounced. And I knock on his door one evening and he opens the door. He goes, Daryl, what are you doing here? You know, he hadn't seen me in a long time, right? And he stepped out of the apartment. He looks up and down the hallway to see if I brought anybody. Oh, How long has it been? Oh, goodness. Uh, just under a year, maybe. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he steps out of the apartment, and um, he looks up and down. And um, when he stepped out, I stepped into the apartment. And he says, what's going on? Are you still playing? What's going on? I said, yeah, 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 I'm still playing. But I want to talk about the clan. He says, the clan? And then he tells me, you know, I said, yeah, you're a member, right? He goes, yeah, but... I quit. He tells me this long story as to why he quit the plan. And make a long story short, I I uh, persuaded him. Wait, sorry, you know. b- before you continue, why did he quit the clan? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I didn't find out that day. Okay. I found out I found out much later, but I'll tell you the story now. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, back back then, uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia, was a was a very big stronghold for the Klan. Every Labor Day in this country, all the Klan groups would come or send a representative from their group uh, to Stone Mountain, Georgia. This imperial wizard, which means national leader, his name was James Venable, big time leader from the 1920s. He was an old man. Anyway, he owned a lot of Stone Mountain. He would have a rally on top Stone Mountain, which he owned the property uh, every Labor Day to unite all the different Klan groups. Come. And uh, that was, you know, that had been a yearly tradition. So um, now what the guy told me was he quit the Klan because he did not find that the Klan had the Christian values that he believed. And so he didn't <laughs> like that and, and he quit. Dude, right. You're kidding, right? No, that, that's what he said. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. okay. So, so the real story, <laughs> um, he had uh, been selected to be the Maryland Klan representative to go to Stone Mountain and represent the Klan in Maryland. And so they had taken up a collection to pay his expenses to fly down there and stay in the hotel, you know, food, et cetera, rent the car, whatever. Um, They gave him the money to go. And he was to go represent Maryland and uh, come back and give a full report at the next Klan meeting. Well, he came back and he gave the report. Something sounded funny about the report. Something did not add up. And some people got suspicious. The Grand Dragon here got suspicious. And um, they looked into it. Nobody saw him in Stone Mountain. Nobody could verify his presence there. Well, turned out he took the money and went to the arena, which we had here called Cap Center, um, to go see Hulk Hogan wrestle. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's funny. It was this it Hulk very, Hogan or this was Hollywood Hogan? I mean, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, so they had banished him from the clan. They kicked him out. Got it. Yeah. And uh, so that, that, that was the real story. Okay. So anyway, um, I wanted him to, uh, to, to uh, introduce me to the leader here in Maryland. Well, he didn't want to do it. He was afraid. And not only was he afraid for his own sake, but he was afraid for mine. And, you know, he, liked, he, you know, he genuinely liked And um, I had to beg and plead with him. He wouldn't do it. And so finally, uh, he consented to giving me the man's phone number and address on the condition that I not tell the Grand Dragon where I got his personal information. The Grand Dragon. That was the state leader for yeah, the clan. Yeah, exactly. Okay, different yes. from the Imperial Wizard, was the national leader for the clan. Right. Planet. Okay, uh, yeah, so I'll run that down for you. So um, the top the top man, the national leader, what we call the president, mm-hmm. uh, that person is known as the Imperial Wizard. Imperial anybody Wizard. who, okay. yeah, anybody who is prefixed with the prefix of Imperial means that person is a national officer. Wizard being the highest president. Okay. An Imperial Playlist would be like a vice president. And then you have Imperial Clygra, Imperial Knight Hawk, Imperial, whatever. These are all state officers. Interesting names, Nighthawk and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 
Okay, and then um, below the national level, you have the state level, because the state level reports to the national. Um, the state level, we call the, the leader of the state the governor. They call theirs the grand dragon. So anybody with prefix with the word grand means that person is, is on the state state level. So dragon is the highest. Grand dragon means governor. Grand claylif means uh, lieutenant governor. And then you also you have secretary, treasurer, all grand people. And then um, within the state, you have counties. We call the county uh, leader, the county executive, or county manager, things like that. Um, they call that person the great titan. Anybody great? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. The great titan. <laughs> uh huh. Okay. Well, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you where all that comes from in a minute. But uh, great means you're on the uh, on the uh, county le level. Okay. Okay, within the county, you have districts, areas, what they call claverns. And we would call a district leader a councilman, council member, uh, a, um, a mayor, alderman. They call that person the uh, exalted cyclops. Exalted so, cyclops. That sounds grander than cyclops. the imperial wizard. Maybe that name should have been used for the national. <laughs> <laughs> exalted cyclops? Yeah, you know, yeah. It seems like uh, whoever thought of these names, maybe they're well, rather uh, one too many X-Men comic books but <laughs> well it came up before that um so so then uh and then below the cyclops you you know you just have regular plain members okay. okay now um the the first clansmen in this country there were six of them they put together this group on christmas eve 1865 at the end of the civil war six uh, confederate um, officers got together and decided to form a secret organization and they were they had been member they were of Irish and Scottish descent and they had been members of the Scottish Rite, in other words, the Masons. Okay. And as you know, the Masons are a secret society, mostly benevolent, good society. But they have all these kind of mystical, strange names, Grand This, Grand Poobah that, and all that kind of mm. stuff. So these guys coming from that tradition they appropriated mm. exactly appropriated that that mystique, if you will and applied it to their new organization. Now, what they did was uh, they took the Greek word for circle, which is kuklos, K-U-K-L-O-S, kuklos, means circle in Greek. Mm -hmm. And then being of Irish and Scottish descent, you know, they call a tight-knit group of friends or a family, they call it a clan, C-L-A-N. So like, I'm a Davis, so I would belong to the Davis clan, you know, that kind of thing, right? So they took uh, the word kuklos, they couldn't spell, and they spelled it K-U-K-L-U-X instead of L-O-S. Ku Klux is how they spelled it. And they took the word clan, meaning close-knit friends or family, and they changed the C to a K for uniformity, K-K-K, Ku Klux Klan. So what it means, it translates to mean circle of friends or circle of close friends, circle of family. That's what Ku Klux Klan means. And then they applied all those, you know, mystical, uh, far-out... Um, Harry Potter type names. Wait, so if some of the founders were originally Masons, does that mean that yeah. some members of the KKK were simultaneously Masons as well? Listen, uh, that um, could have been a possibility. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, here's here's the thing. No, um, the the Masons are not. Well, yes, they they did have some racism in them, especially in this country, because we have black Masons and we have white Masons, right? And we have separate clubhouses. In some cases, they all go to the same clubhouse. But back in the day, we had the black masons and the white masons. They all did the same stuff. They all wore the same kind of ring, and, and they had the same rituals and ranks and all that kind of stuff, but they couldn't do it together. Just like you had the black Baptist church and the white Baptist church. They're reading mm -hmm. the same Bible, but racism split them up, right? So um, 
the the Masons did not support the Ku Klux Klan, you know, but they some some Klan members had been Masons, and that's why they borrowed all that mystique uh, from the Masons and applied to their own organization. But that does not mean that uh, that all, everybody you see in the Klan is a Mason. No, absolutely not. And, and when you see the Masons, that does not mean that they're Klansmen. Got it. Okay, so you you sought to get an introduction to the grand dragon of the state of Maryland. Um, how did you approach getting a meeting Okay. Well, the guy had told me, uh, do not go to his house, that he would kill me. And um, he, he did not want me to go meet the guy anyway. He, he was just afraid for me. And so um, he had given me directions to this bar where the Klan would hang out on Saturday night. And he so said, different you know, from the Silver Dollar bar, you guys? Yeah, right, okay. right, right up the road from the Silver Dollar. Okay. And... Um, he said, you know, it's a public place. You know, you're safer to go to go in a public place to meet him than go on his property. Uh, you know, he'll, he will kill you. And uh, he says, I don't guarantee you that he'll talk to you, even in the public place, but you're safer there. And so uh, I had gone to that place, and he was not there at that particular time. That, but that was where he, where he would hang out. I, I, had, I had gone on the wrong day or whatever. So anyway, I had my secretary. My secretary is white. And I had her telephone the man. His name was Roger Kelly. And I, I said, listen, I want you to call Mr. Kelly and tell him that you work for somebody, your boss, who's writing a book on the Klan. Would he consent to sitting down and giving your boss an interview? However, do not tell Mr. Kelly that I'm Black. If he asks, don't lie to him, but do not allude to it. Don't give him reason to ask. Now, here, here is my, my strategy behind that. I could have called him myself because I'm the one who had the phone number that was given to me by the former Klansman. But I did not want to call him because I figured... If, you know, this project meant a lot to me, to sit down and finally get the answer to my question, how can you hate me when you don't know me? So I didn't want to blow any opportunity, right? So I figured, you know, if I call him, he might pick up in my voice that I'm Black by my accent or whatever. He'll say, I'm not talking to you. Click, you know, and my whole project would have been finished before it ever got started. But I knew if Mary uh, called him, he would know by, by, by her voice that, uh, that this is a white lady. And I know the Klan mentality from all the books that I've read. He would not automatically presume or assume that this white woman on the other end of this phone is working for a black man, especially a black man who is writing a, a book on the Ku Klux Klan, because they did not exist. Got My it. book, it would become the first. The first, got it. Yeah, so I, I said, you know, give him a call. I figured, you know, that might increase the odds that he would say, yes, he'll sit down, because he'll think it's some white guy. But also, if if he knew that I was black, and he and he agreed to do the interview, I didn't want him to prepare different answers in the interim for a black uh, uh, interviewer than he would have for a white interviewer. Makes you know, sense. I wanted to be spontaneous. So, you know, get him to the room where we're going to meet, and, um, and then he can decide when he sees me um, if he wants to beat me up or if he wants to walk away or if he wants to come in and sit down and talk. Mm. So that was, you know, the strategy. And uh, she called him, and he invited us to, uh, to his house. He didn't ask what color I was. And something had come up for, uh, for, for that day, so I had, to, I had her call and, and reschedule. I told her, you know what, reschedule. Uh, let, let, let's, let's put it in neutral ground. Let's not, let's not go to his house. Let's, yeah, probably uh, a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, so, what area of uh, Maryland did he live? Frederick. 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 Okay. Yeah. So, Is it safe so, to assume that Frederick at that time was a predominantly white? Yes. Okay. All right. So, um, so then uh, we, she rescheduled, and we rescheduled for the motel above the Silver Dollar Lounge in the same building. And so she and I, uh, it was scheduled for 5.15 on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, she and I got there early. Uh, several hours early, as a matter of fact. And I gave her some money and sent her down the hall to purchase uh, soft drinks out of the machine uh, 
and put them in a bucket of ice to get them cold. So I would be able to offer Mr. Kelly a cold beverage, you know, when he arrived. I wanted to be hospitable. Um, I had no idea what this man would do, you know, once he saw me. But if he were to come into my room and to do this interview, I wanted, you know, to be nice, offer him a cold drink. Did you take any safety precautions at all? No. No. Nothing? You didn't nothing. have like a, a gun or, or like an escape route? Nothing? All I had were my wits. Mm, okay. So um, now the, the, the room uh, was interesting. You know, we didn't choose it like this. It just happened to be like this. If you were standing in the hallway at the door coming into the hotel room, into the motel room rather, um, you could not see who's in the room. All, all you would see is that little entrance and then the bathroom over here to the left. But then you had to walk around the corner and the room is off to the right. So... Until you come halfway into the room, you don't see who's in there. Mm. All right? So I took the, the, uh, the small lamp table, took the lamp off, and put the table in the obscure corner of the room. And I put a chair on one side for Miss Kelly and a chair on the other side for me. And I had a bag, black canvas bag or whatever. Um, in my bag, I had the Bible. I had a cassette recorder, which I put in the middle of the table, all hoping that he would allow me to record the interview if he came in the room. And I okay. had some blank, yeah, I had some blank cassettes. All so those were conspicuous, right? They were inconspicuous. You could, you, you could not see them. They were All inside right. my bag. Got it. All right, so the bag is sitting beside the foot of my chair, right? and the cassette player or cassette recorder is sitting in the center of the table. So I'm all ready, right? I'm, I'm over here where you can, I'm in the far corner of the room. You cannot see me if you're standing in the door. So right on time, 5.15, knock, knock, knock. Mary jumps up, runs around the corner, and opens the door. In walk, or what is called the Grand Nighthawk. Nighthawk in clan terminology means security, bodyguard. Okay. So, so a Grand Nighthawk is the bodyguard for the Grand Dragon. Kind of like Imperial. the Secret Service, huh? Exactly. Mm. So, the, so the Imperial Nighthawk would be the bodyguard for the Imperial Wizard. So anyway, so this Grand Nighthawk, and he's wearing military camouflage. And he's got that plus clan pack right here, that red circle, the white cross, and the red blood drop. And over here are the initials KKK. And then uh, embroidered. And he, on he wore that. Obviously, they came from outside the hotel, so he, he wore that publicly. Oh yeah, come yeah, to yeah. the hotel. Oh yeah, interesting. Oh yeah, okay. and uh, and and on, on embroidered on his uh, cap, uh, his barrette cap, it said Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. So you know, you know, they didn't care. You know, Frederick was a stronghold for the Klan at that time. Mm. And um, anyway, um, he comes in, and and he, and he has a semi-automatic handgun in a holster on on his side, and. Um, he comes in, and Mr. Kelly is wearing a uh, dark blue suit and tie. He's walking right behind this guy. And the Nighthawk turned the corner and saw me. He just stopped dead in his tracks. And Mr. Kelly, you know, could not see around him to, to know what happened. He didn't even realize the guy stopped into his back and knocked him forward. Mm. And so now they both are tripping over, over each other and stumbling around trying to get their balance. And I'm just sitting at the table looking at them, wa you know, watching this comedy <laughs> here. And, uh, <laughs> it must have been a surprise. <laughs> yeah. What was going on? <laughs> right. And I'm looking at their faces. I mean, it, it's hard to explain, but I, I could read their faces. I could, I could read it just like you could read a highway billboard. I, I knew what they were thinking. They were thinking. It's a setup. Well, yeah, that was one of the things. They were thinking, uh, is this a setup? Or did the desk clerk give us the room, the wrong room number? Or did we misunderstand the number or something? Because they were not expecting a black. So I saw this apprehension in their faces and this question in their minds. So I stood up and I went like this. I displayed my palms to show I had nothing. And I walked forward. I put my right hand out. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly, I'm Daryl Davis. And he shook my hand. And his Nighthawk shook my hand. Hmm. So I'm thinking, oh, that's interesting. So far, so good. But, you know, I didn't know what they were going to do, right? But I, I said, come on in, come on in, please. Have a seat. 
Mr. Kelly sat down, and the Nighthawk stood at attention to his right side. And then I was going to sit down opposite him. And right as I was starting to sit down, he says, Mr. Davis, do you have any form of identification? I said, sure. And I produced my, my driver's license for him. Hmm. He looked at it. He says, oh, you live, in, you live on, on, uh, on such and such street in, uh, in Silver Spring. Hi, was, Mar- was marking your address? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Hold on. Why, why, why is he, you know... Um, you know, reading off my, my street address. You know, all he has to do is look at my picture, look at my name, look at me, and make sure, you know, all three correspond and give me back my license. You know, you don't need my address. I, I didn't say that, but, uh, you know, it was registering with me that, you know, this is a point of concern. You know, is he, is he you know, going to come to my house and burn a cross one night or what? So I want to, to let him know that this is not cool. But I did not want to, you know, be obvious about it. So I said, yes, yes, Mr. Kelly. Uh, yes, that, that is where I live. I said, oh, and, and, and you live at, and I named his house number. And his oh, how did you get, oh, you knew his address from before. Got no, it. I knew it from, from the guy who gave from it to me. From the guy who, yeah, you yeah. were supposed to meet his house the first time before you were scheduled to the hotel and everything. Right, exactly. Okay. So, um, you know, I was letting him know that, you know, uh, subliminally, if, if you come and visit me, I'm going to come visit you. So <laughs> we're going to confine all the visiting to this motel, Got right? It. So uh, he smiled, he nodded his head, like he, he understood. But um, I did not realize that day that I had been presumptuous. I, I, I did not have any reason to fear Mr. Kelly coming to my house. Um, the reason he made you know, remark about my, about my street was because one of his members lived right down the street here, right wow. in the next neighborhood. Did you I know? Didn't, no, I didn't know that at all. And this okay, is Silver so, Spring, right? I remember Silver Spring. Yeah. That's where the Discovery office. That's right. Now I don't it, know if they were. Yeah, they just, they just the moved. Yeah. Just moved a few months ago. But yes, they've been in Silver Spring for a number of years now. Huh. Um, right down Georgia Avenue. Yeah. So Mr. Kelly would have to come from Frederick uh, down to my street and go down my street into this member's neighborhood. So he recognized the street. It was, it was pure coincidence. No one could have known. And you never noticed suspicious activities from members of that community? Maybe at no. night someone was like, nothing. No, it, okay. it wasn't right in the neighborhood. It was the next neighborhood down. Oh, the next neighborhood. But, but my, yeah, but my street goes, goes through there. Got it. So he, he just recognized the street. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I, I didn't know that. And uh, anyway, that, but, that, but that guy, that Klansman, he is in a prison now and in the state of Maine committing a hate crime. And uh, he's there for a long, long time. So anyway... Um, we got on with this interview, and within, you know, a few minutes, he was telling me, you because know, I'm, I'm asking, you know, you know, how can you hate me? You don't, you don't even know me. You know, and oh, he me, went straight to the point, huh? Well, you know, after I asked, you know, a couple other questions. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, that was my main purpose, uh, to, to find out this, this question that had been plaguing me since I was a kid. So he let me know that, uh, you know, black bull um, are prone to crime, and, and that, you know, we're criminals, and that's why there are more black people in prison uh, than there are white that that's that's his reason. Interesting. Uh, because because he sees the, the, the prison population mm. as being more black than white. So, you know, one's perspective is one's reality. Mm. And so um you know, I'm listening to him and uh you know he he's not considering the inequity of the justice system, right? Mm-hmm. He's not considering oh. a lot of things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's not considering period. Okay, so but that's what he sees, that's what he processed. Okay, so I'm listening. And then he goes on to say that uh black people are you know, inherently lazy. We don't want to work. We prefer to scam the uh the uh government welfare system, uh sell drugs on the street, rob and steal, pawn stuff, you know. This is coming okay. from a group who took uh the Labor Day money to go watch Hulk Hogan, right? Exactly. Okay. Got it. Okay. <laughs> <All right>. So <laughs> uh, 
And then uh, also, there was a book that had come out right around then called The Bell Curve. And it was a very racist, stupid book. Anyway, um, it, it said, you know, that, that black people are, are inherently not as intelligent as white. That was the crux of this book. Anyway, now, these people, they don't read the book. They, all they have to do is hear a quote about that. And they, say, and, and they hold the book up like the Bible or something, right? Yeah. So anyway, he was saying that, uh, that black people are born with smaller brains than white people. And therefore, we don't have the brain capacity that white people have to have more intelligence. Wow. Our intelligence is only like right here. But he was saying all this verbatim to you. Yeah. Do you, well, I guess he had a bodyguard, so, and you, you know, had an objective, so you had to, like, remain well, calm. No, 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 listen. See, see that's, that's, that's where we differ, or where most people differ with me. Um, was what he was saying, was it offensive? Yes, of course it was offensive. Was I offended by it? Absolutely not. Did he internalize it? Right. I mean, why would I internalize a lie? Mm. This man, I just met him five, ten minutes ago. How could he possibly know anything about me? So what he is saying is completely untrue. Well, wait, well, wait. Let's let let me get this straight, Daryl. Were you offended by it? But because of the objective of you writing a book, you chose to overlook certain things because you had an end goal in mind. No, or you were just not offended by it. Period. I was not offended by it. Period. Because because none of it was true. Mm. None of it was true. So you know, uh, why would I be offended by a lie? I mean, th that's what he believes, and, and is is based on nothing, based on ignorance. And, mm. but see, most people, they would get offended, they'd be ready to, to reach across the table and smack them across the face. You, you know what, you know? that, that kind of makes sense because we have a saying where I'm from in Nigeria that says, um, he who fights with a crazy person is in himself crazy. Himself. crazy. <laughs> right, So exactly. like you should have the intuition to know that, hey, this person is, you know, uh, talking about my knowledge deranged and, you know, I shouldn't like, engage with it's not worth my time that kind of thing. exactly okay. exactly okay and i've been to lagos and oh, really? uh yeah <laughs> nice. i have so anyway uh you know i'm not offended by this and i let him go on and when he got finished i said to him i said listen i do not have a criminal record i have never been on welfare i've never measured my brain but i'm sure it's the same size as anybody else and i, and I knew the whole time that i had more education in my little fingernail than his whole group yeah, uh, you had been exposed as a little kid. You had gone to Howard. You had you know, right. toured the world so, and all that. Okay. So why why would I why would I be offended? Yes, mm. what he was saying was offensive, but why should I internalize it? It doesn't apply to me. And I also knew that sure, are, are you know are there black criminals? Absolutely. Are there black people on welfare? Absolutely. Are there black people who may not be as intelligent as some white guy? Absolutely. But for every one of those black people that you point out to me, I can find 100 white guys that, that fit the same description. So why should I be offended by, by, by his, his lie? I've seen more of the world than he will ever see. So why would I waste my time being offended? So that, that, that was my perspective. So, you know, we carried on and uh, we talked back and forth. But every time um, he would say something, well, Mr. Davis, the Bible says, I would reach down and get my Bible out and hand it to him. Mm. I say, please, please sh show me exactly chapter and verse where, where the Bible states. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, he'd show me something, and it, it would be some passage which he had twisted the narration to suit himself, mm. okay? And, um, and then if I ran out of cassette tape was finished, I'd reach down to get a fresh cassette. Every time I reached down, the, the Nighthawk would reach up to his, to his weapon. To his holster. Uh, to his holster. And, and I, was not, I was not offended by that either. Because that's his job. His job is to protect himself and protect his boss. He had no idea 
you know, what is in my bag. True. And so he's doing, you know, what he's supposed to be doing. And, yeah, pretty uh, much and, conducting a podcast interview in the 80s before podcasts. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> a, a dangerous podcast. <laughs> a very, very dangerous one at that. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, after, after a while, he realized, you know, there was no threat in the bag. He relaxed. I went in and out of the bag. Nobody jumped or anything like that. So a little over an hour, just over an hour into this thing, um, there was a very fast noise in the room, uh, just, just like that, that short, that fat. Mm. And I mean, we both, we all jumped. And I even came up out of my chair and hit the table. Mm. And w- what had happened was the noise was so fast and so short, and it came out of nowhere. You know, we were just talking like you and I are right now, and it happened out of the blue. And because it was so short and so fast, my, my ear could not discern what it was for me to process. So I, I, processed, I processed it as being threatening or ominous because I didn't know what it was. So, you know, you fear the unknown. And so I became fearful for my life because I knew without a doubt in my mind that this man, this Klansman, Grand Dragon, sitting across from me had made that noise because I was doing process of elimination. I didn't make I didn't think Mary made it, so he had How was Mary seated? Was she beside you, behind you? She was beside me on my left, sitting on top of the dresser, because there were were no more chairs. So she just propped herself up there. So I knew he made it, and um, I didn't know why he made it. And so I jumped up out of my chair, hit the table, and, you know, I'm hearing that Klansman's voice, that former Klansman, Daryl, don't fool with Roger Kelly, he'll kill you. And I'm thinking... Was that a possibility, though, like in a hotel, in a public place? Had that happened before in the town or something? Well, let me ask you a question. You didn't want to find out. Well, that too. But uh, didn't we just see a murder in a public place on a sidewalk? We did. Okay, on camera, while the guy is looking right into the camera? It did. I'm talking about George Floyd, right? Yeah, this was even before cameras, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, you know, we, we, you know, yes, it's, it's, it's a good possibility. People get murdered every day in broad daylight. So, and, and, and then you have somebody who has an organization that has done a lot of murders. You know, they bomb black churches, killed people, hung people from, hang people from trees, drag them behind pickup trucks with, with, with no shame. Oh, yeah, a big possibility. So I'm thinking, you know, Daryl, don't fool with Roger Kelly. He'll kill you. I'm hearing that voice. And I'm thinking, what did I just do? What did I, you know, what did I just say that caused him to go off and make some weird, threatening noise? So I'd gone into survival mode because I had feared for my life. And when you go into survival mode, there's only about four things you can do. Um, some people, they will just fall out and pass out because the fear is so great. Their brain cannot process and the brain shuts down and they, they faint. I don't do that. Uh, other people they begin tensing up and their muscles constrict and they start shaking and they can't move. And you can be hitting them, hitting them, and they're not even trying to deflect the blows because they're, they're so scared they're shaking and their muscles have constricted. That is called paralysis by fear. And I don't do that either. The third thing people will do is to run away. And that is the best option, to separate yourself from the source of the fear as quickly as you can. Put as much distance between you and whatever is causing you to be afraid. Um, I would have chosen that option if it had been available to me. But there's no... You are in the room. I'm in the room. Somebody has a gun. You you cannot outrun a bullet, right? And I don't have any gun. My secretary doesn't have any gun. So that was not an option. The the fourth and last option that's available is to do a preemptive strike. Get them before they get you. Preempt the threat. Hmm. And that's why I came up out of my chair. I was ready to dive across the table, grab the Grand Dragon, grab the Grand Nighthawk, and uh, throw them down to the ground and take away the uh, Nighthawk's weapon. 
to, to immobilize the situation, neutralize the situation. I did not know if uh, Mr. Kelly had a weapon up under his suit and tie or not, because I couldn't see under there, but I could see the weapon on the Nighthawk hip. So my job was to, to, to neutralize that. I did not want to die. I did not want my secretary to be harmed. So it's my job to protect us. It's that guy's job to protect himself and his Grand Dragon. Yeah, so, explain it so well. Like all these things, you processed all these scenarios and information within a split second. Within a split second. Was this like from all your time on the road as a musician? Had you, had you got into incidences in the past or something? Uh, why did you develop that kind of... I think that was just natural with me. Mm, okay. I think it's just, uh, I have pretty good, ins and, and I read people pretty well. I mean, I've made mistakes before, sure, but I never killed anybody before. But, um, you know, I've made some mistakes, but no, for the most part, I have pretty good, ins and, and they're very fast. And uh, anyway, so I processed all that, and that's when I, when I was coming up to do that, I'm looking right at my target. I'm looking right into his eyes. And just like I could read his face when he came in the door, you know, I could read his eyes. And his eyes were saying to me, um, what did you just do? And I knew that he could read my eyes, because I didn't say anything to him either. We both were silent. My eyes were saying to him, what did you just do? And the Nighthawk was looking back and forth between both of us, and his eyes were saying, what did either one of you all just do? And he has his hand on his gun, right? Mm. So it was neither of you guys that made the sound. Neither of us, none of us, you know? And so we all are, are being suspicious of each other. So Mary, like I said, she's sitting right here to my left. She realized what happened. The ice in the bucket had begun melting, and she, she was explaining it to us. And the cans of soda went, shh, shh, shh. You know, down the ice. And um, right when, as she was explaining, it happened again. And we all started laughing, all of us. <laughs> we all started laughing at how ignorant we all had been. And um, I was going to say, this, this was not a learning moment, because you know, the learning would come later, but it was a teaching moment. Mm. And, and the lesson that was taught was that all because of this foreign entity, that being the bucket of ice, Kansas soda, it was foreign to us, because we were on a way we were, we were ignorant of it, mm. all because of this this foreign entity had entered into our little comfort zone that we had built, unbeknownst to us, by way of this noise that it made. We became fearful and accusatory of each other. So the lesson taught is ignorance breeds fear. Fear we what fear you don't understand. We, exactly, we fear mm. what we don't understand. If you do not keep that fear in check, that fear will then grow and escalate into hatred. Mm. because we hate the things that frighten us. If we do not keep the hatred in check, that hatred will escalate into destruction. We mm. want to destroy the things that we hate. Why? Because they frighten us. They cause us to be fearful. And these things can be passed down from one generation to the next. So even though the ignorance started from one generation, like the next generation doesn't even need to be aware of the ignorance part. They just start at this level with the hate part, exactly. or the destruction part. Interesting. Exactly, exactly. Interesting. And so, and, and, and at the end of the day, it boils down to the fact that whatever it was, was harmless, and we were just ignorant. So if you want to, you know, and, and, and after, you know, after we got done laughing and all this kind of stuff, you know, we carried on with the conversation. The, the man never reached for his gun again. We, you know, we laughed, we talked, et cetera. Everything was good. But the um, problem is this. If you want to, to address the problem of racism, I think people are going about it backward. I understand they, they are doing it intuitively, um, but this is something that has to be done counterintuitively. Like, for example... You know, when you have to have police reform, which is what, what better be coming to this country pretty soon, you start at the top, okay? If people are acting up down below, your subordinate officer, it's because management is not doing their job. 
it, it trickles down. You got to set the example up there and let that trickle down to the people on the ground. The ground. Uh, well, I mean, there now. are several arguments to that, you know, concerning them specifically like the police. Like some people might not have access to the people at the top. We've had situations of police chiefs who actually wanted change. But of course, you have uh, the police unions and you have, you know, uh, you have situations of police men being fired and being reinstated back because the unions had funded a court case against the department to bring them back. So it's it, it's more than that, you know, but I do understand it's, that, you know, to it's, it's more, uh, yeah, sometimes. it's more, it's more than that, but that's where it starts at the top. And, and furthermore is this, um, a lot of the people at the top are loath to, to uh, penalize the people at the bottom. You know why? Because when they were at the bottom, they were doing the same thing. Okay. So if you're on the streets as a patrolman, you know, beating up people with your nightstick and taking bribes and doing whatever you shouldn't be doing. And over the years, you know, you, 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 graduate to sergeant, then lieutenant, then captain, then major, and now you're up in the brass, you know, you're not patrolling the streets anymore, you're up in the top, mm. and, you're, and you're in internal affairs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you reinforced and, and, all that over the years. Right, and then, huh. and then somebody, somebody comes and complains, you know, Officer John Doe, you know, hit me in the head with a nightstick, and I was just... Mm. That's how we did it, yeah. That's how it. we did it, you know, so I'm not going to prosecute, you know, John Doe, mm. right? So that happens too. So, but it's trickled down. That's the problem. Well, and even in, in business companies, not, not just police, you know, people take their cues from the top. So you cannot address racism. To, you know, so people, so what we're doing wrong is we are addressing the hatred. We are addressing the fear. That's wrong. The hatred, what we, you can't address the, the destruction at the top because once you destroy somebody, they're not coming back, right? George Floyd is not coming back. Um, so you go to the next level. That's the hatred. Don't address the hatred. Don't worry about the fear. Those are symptoms. If you have cancer in the bone, you can't put some kind of topical cream on, on top or a Band-Aid. You've got to drill down to that bone. and That's the, the ignorance, root. The, the root cause. Exactly, the root cause. If you, if, you, if you cure the root cause, all the symptoms go away. But right? isn't, but now, isn't, it's not a one-pronged approach. I'm sorry to cut you short. Like, mm -hmm. it's almost like, and that's why I, I you know, some people, you know, I, I was talking to someone that, hey, I'm going to interview Daryl. This is what he does. And he wanted, you know, nothing to do with you and something like that. And I'm sure that's something you've experienced before. But I was like, hey, sure. you know what? We need to approach these problems from different sides. Everyone has a role to play, right? Just mm -hmm. like if you're fighting a physical war with the country. Air Force has to, its own right. role. The Army has a role. The Navy that's has what a role. I've always, that's what I've always, Everyone has a role. So there, there might be some people who have racism to is a, is a Yes, racism is a multifaceted problem, and mm. therefore it must take multi-prong to address it. But mm. the problem is everybody has a role to play, but what they don't play, what they don't, some of them don't do, is coordinate with each other. Mm. I can agree And with that's that. the problem. I can That's the problem. That. You know, we, have, we all have our specialty, all right? Some people want, want to address the, the systemic. Others want to, want to address individual. Yeah. Others want to do this and do that. And I can books. agree with that. Imagine if okay. Marth, Martin and Malcolm X were together. and Exactly. It'd be more powerful, school. wouldn't it? I agree. Yeah, you got it covered just like that. But mm -hmm. people don't want, you know, e even, even with our agencies, the DEA doesn't always share information with the FBI, who doesn't share information with the ATF, who doesn't share information with the local police. You know, they each want to, you know, get the credit or do whatever it is they want to do. They don't share. They have to learn how to coordinate. Now, within the same police department, yes, they, they coordinate. The SWAT team with the men on the street, with the hostage negotiator, with all these different entities within the same police department, they will coordinate multi-prong. But different agencies, they don't like to share their information, which is wrong. Okay, They could get, they could get the job done a lot faster and a lot more efficient.
if they learn how to uh, how to coordinate and cooperate. Maybe that boils uh, down to the clan system, just people being comfortable with their clan, in quote, you know, uh, yeah. not, not the KKK, but, you know, the people they are familiar with. So whether that's a police department, that's why you have the blue wall of silence. Exactly. Whether that's uh, people from a certain race or whether that's people that belong to a certain sports team or whatever it is. They just identify with a group of people. And if you're not, don't have features that are homogeneous to that group, you're just seen as an outsider and it's difficult to go across the bridge. So if we, if we address the root cause and there is a cure, for ignorance. That cure is education. Because mm. if you cure ignorance, there's nothing to fear. If there's mm. nothing to fear, how do you educate, nothing to hate. How do you educate people who are not willing to learn, though? Wait that a minute. Is... I've, I've done that. Mm. And I've been, I've been very successful at it. Okay. It, does not mean, it does not mean that every Klansman that I meet is going to change. No, mm. there'll be those who will go to the grave being ignorant and violent, etc. But if somebody is willing to sit down with you, there's a chance that they can take something away with you. Mm. You know, you plant a seed. But you've got to come back and water that seed. Makes That's sense. why I would have multiple, multiple meetings with them. So you, you cure the ignorance, there's nothing to fear. If there's nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. If there's nothing to hate, there's nothing, nothing to destroy. And, I, and I'll give you an example. Even, even with, you know, we're talking about adults right now, okay? And we're talking about professional haters, the Klan, the neo-Nazis, et cetera. But, but let's talk about innocent, innocent people because it works the same way. Let's talk about children. I have, I have, and then I'm going to have to run because I have another one at 7.30. Um, you have innocent children. And I've given lectures to elementary schools and things like that. And I'll just, you know, of course, I tone it down for, for their sake. But I'm talking to two kids in a classroom. And I'm like, just like you and I are talking right now. And then all of a sudden, I shout, hey, hey, there's a snake under your chair. Just at my shouting that, at that suggestion, the kids scream, even three rows back. They throw up their legs up in the air because mm -hmm. they think there's a snake under their chair. Just because I, I have expressed, and they start screaming, throw their legs in the air. And then they realize there's no snake there, and they start laughing. They're like, why did you do that? And I'm like, well, why did you scream when I said that? I said, ooh, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm afraid of snakes. I hate snakes. Well, no, there's your fear. There's your, there's your, your hatred. And I say, well, wh why, why do you hate snakes? Why, why are you afraid of them? Well, they're, they're slimy. You know, they're, they're, you know they're, they're, they're poisonous. Well, no, there's your ignorance. Snakes, if you ever touch a snake, you know it's not slimy. It's dry, right? And... Not all snakes are poisonous. Some are good snakes. Some are poisonous. So there's your ignorance. So ignorance breeds fear, breeds hatred. So then I say to them, okay, now we know there's no snake under your chair. You know, we're talking about little kids, right? Mm -hmm. And I say, we know there's no snake under your chair. I was just joking. You know, we're having fun. But let's just say there really was a snake under your chair. What would you want me to do about it? You know what they say? Kill it. Kill it. There's your destruction. Mm -hmm. Ignorance breeds fear, breeds hatred, breeds destruction. destruction. And, these, and these are little kids that have, you know, no, no horse in the race. Mm. Okay, anyway, that's all fine and good. Like, let's get back a little bit to the story. So um, you wrapped up this interview. You and Roger Kelly kind of became friends. You guys yes, started to see each other. And he invited you to a couple of clan meetings, right? Yep. Like, and rallies, this is, yeah. This is clan rallies. Like, this is surprising that, you know, a, 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 a clansman want to invite the one thing that well, he... His natural course. enemy to like a clan rally. So how did that? What was your experience like at your first rally, for instance? Like how many well, people were there? What did you see? A lot of people see? were there. A lot of people, I saw. I saw them light the cross on fire and walk around and salute it and give oh, really? speeches and stuff. Oh yeah. But um, I, and I'll send you some pictures to go along with your podcast if you like. But um, what allowed me to be invited in the first place was my credibility, my transparency. Okay. And this is very, very important um, in anything that you do, not just when you're dealing with um, 
with uh, white supremacists. I mean, it could be, you know, even if you're a car salesperson uh, or you're working in some kind of business or whatever it is you're trying to do, uh, you, you only have one opportunity to make a good first impression. Mm. You might have a second or third opportunity to make an impression, but you only have one chance to make a good first impression, all right? Because people generally judge you on their first impression of you. That makes sense. So, and, okay, so in order for me to get return and repetitive visits with this man, um, I had to be credible. I had to be transparent. So even though he may not like me because I'm a criminal, I'm on welfare, my brain is small, and I'm black, and whatever other reasons he may have, um, I'm credible. He sees that I'm transparent. I'm being honest. And he cannot refute that. And I know my stuff. I know I know as much, if not more, about the Klan than he does. And he respects that, I, that I've done my homework. So you got to be, you know, you got to be respectful and respectable, know your stuff, and also be credible. Because when you are actively learning about somebody else, you don't realize it. You are passively teaching them about yourself. Mm. So you think you're getting all this information from them, mm. but they so are assessing a you. Street. Mm. It's a two-way street. So let's say, okay, so for example, let's say um, I'm interviewing you. And... Um, and you know you may you know you you and I may have different opinions on things. You may not even care about you know for my opinion. It's totally against whatever it is you stand for. So if you don't like my opinion, you don't like me or whatever. But I'm credible, and I've been honest with you, and I've given you the opportunity to speak your mind. And so I say to you, hey, listen, um, you know I'd like to talk to you some more about this. You know, can can we continue this next week? You'll probably say, yeah, you know that, that's fine. Even though you know you may not agree with me, you are willing to talk to me because I've been respectful respectful of you. Even though I may not have respected what you had to say, I respected your right to say it. Okay, and I've been credible, I've been transparent, so you're willing to come back and talk some more. All right, but if your first impression was of, of me was I don't like this guy. This guy is he's sneaky. He's dishonest. You know, he's mm. trying to do something. And I say to you, hey, uh, no, Sarah, um, you know, you know, let's let, let's get together again next week. You'd be like, uh, no, I don't think so. I'm 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 done. I don't think so. You know, or I got I got I got I got something else to do next week. I you know, I can't talk. You're gonna find some excuse to to not be with me because I did not impress you. So I'm not saying you have to go out and kiss somebody's butt because they can see through that too. Mm. But you got to be honest and transparent. So that's what I was, and that's why he allowed me into that inner things I could see and I could learn. What, what, what were some of the rituals you like experienced besides, you know, the burning of the cross and the, the burning of the cross? I, I understand that wasn't traditional. Well, let me, let me, uh, let me, let me, let me give you uh, the definition. Okay. okay there, are two, there are two occasions upon which they set the cross aflame. One is called a cross burning and the other is called a cross lighting. Cross lighting, cross burning. Got it. Okay, now there's a difference. A cross burning is when they take a five or 10 foot cross and they wrap it in burlap. And the burlap has been soaked in what they call clam cologne, diesel fuel, <laughs> kerosene. Yeah. And they, and they come and they stick it in your yard uh, because you are a black couple in a white neighborhood or you're gay or you're, you know, you're whatever they don't like. They put that cross in, in, your, in your yard, set it on fire and they run away. That is, that's called a cross burning. And that is meant to be an intimidation, a threat. It tells you, we know who you are, we know what you're doing, cease and desist, or the next time we come back, we mean business. In other words, they will come back and they will destroy you, okay? That's, that's, your, that's your warning, and you only get one warning. That's called a cross burning. When you go to a rally and they have a 20 or 30-foot cross, same deal with the burlap and the clan cologne, and they, they, they are all in their you know, robes and hoods, and they all have torches, and they all make a big, wide circle around this tall cross, and they march... And uh, clockwise around this cross, 
And then one of the leaders, the Grand Dragon or the Imperial Wizard, will say, Klansmen, halt. And the Klansmen and Klanswomen will stop. Klansmen face the cross. He'll all turn and face in, into the circle. That's where the cross is. And then uh, he'll say, for my God. And they all repeat, for my God. And they bow. For my race. For my race. And they bow. Interesting. You know, for my country. For my country. For my clan. For my clan. White power. White power. All right? Klansmen approach the cross. And they all close in to the foot of the cross. And they say, Klansmen, light the cross. And they all throw their torches to the base of the cross. And it catches fire. And you got this big cross of flame. Mm. And they stand there and they admire it for a while. And then they go to the podium and they give a bunch of speeches on the history of the clan and what they're looking to do and this, that, and the other. And it's, it's, and then afterwards they, they have, uh, you know, refreshments, soda pop, hot dogs, whatever. Is this during the day or the ceremony is typically like at night or something? Uh, nighttime, but they also have some during the day. Got it. I've been to both, but listen, I'm going to have to run here. Uh, I, I just have two more questions to ask you real quick. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I know like we kind of like got a little carried away. I'm interested to know like how did you? Because um, obviously, ultimately, like you converted. Uh, you know, let me just fast forward here. You converted a bunch of clans people who you know denounced. Well, let, 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 yeah, let me say this. I don't. I don't like to say that I converted them. Uh, they they converted themselves. I, I was okay. the impetus for it. I planted the seeds and gave them some things to think about, and then they decided to leave. So mm -hmm. yes, they they were converted, but they did the conversion. It wasn't like I came in there and said, "Hey, listen, you know, you you all need to change. You need to yeah. get out." But no, that that would I, have taken a long time. Like, how yeah. long did one did it take one person they, to suddenly like they are not the they are not stamped out of a standard cookie cutter. They yeah, come from all different walks of life. So different, you know, it depends upon how long they've been in, what they have invested in it, what position they have, because everybody likes power, all right? So mm -hmm. if they've risen up the rank, and they, you know, and now they're in some kind of leadership position, they may be a little harder to get to get out because they're powerful. They feel powerful. Yeah. And they know if they get down, they're going to lose all that power. And then how do you tell the people below you, I was wrong? Who was the highest, what was the highest rank of officer? That Imperial wizard. Imperial wizard, really? Yeah. Roger Kelly was an imperial wizard. When I met him, he was a grand dragon. Oh, he and, later and became an imperial became wizard. became an imperial wizard. And, and there have also been some other ones. Uh, how, also, how many another, people I have so far? Over, over 200. Over 200. Oh, wow. Some of them are imperial wizards. Some of them are grand dragons. Some of them are cyclops, different offices, and, the, and, and, and a lot of the regular members. And the first meeting with Roger Kelly was in the 80s, so 200 people over no, the course No, the first meeting with Roger Kelly was actually uh, 90, 1990. 90. Okay, so yeah. I can say maybe 25 years worth of work or something uh, 30, 30 years yeah, yeah 30 years worth of work um yeah. do you um like i said you know a lot of people might say hey you know 200 people in the span of 30 years you know that that's a very slow process to take years to get to know someone but let me tell you something now you know i you know, see these people who say that that's because they're sitting on their butts doing nothing and they got nothing mm. to show for it. I, I got clan robes and clan hoods. I, I have a ton of them. And even if I only had one, that, that you know, when you change, when one person changes, a generation changes. Facts. So you take those, those 200 people and they're changing people because they influence other people Facts. rather than have their kids grow up into, uh, into, into little clan people who grew up into <laughs> big clan people. They've changed. Facts. Okay. So, you know, it, it snowballs. So, yeah. you know, so rather than sit around and criticize me, get up off your butt and go out there and do something. And do something. One question I've been, I was curious about in your whole dealings with um, members of the clan, um, did you get to interact with a lot of clans women at all? Yes, I, I did. Yes, I did. The psyche of a clans woman. I can, you know, how, how did you, what was your experience with them? Uh, it was fine. Um, you know, they are subservient. To, to the men, 
Um, and, you know, and again, you know, they are individuals. They join for certain reasons. Some of them actually believe the stuff that the uh, Klan, you know, preaches. And others join, uh, well, because they believe it, but others join because their boyfriend or their husband is involved, mm. you know, and they may or not necessarily believe it, but they go along with it. Do they have like the and, same robes, the same titles? Yeah, they have the, yeah, they have the same robes, uh, but they, as I said, they're subservient. They, they do not get uh, the, the top offices. You won't, you won't find a female grand dragon or imperial wizard. They have lower, lower jobs like uh, imperial secretary, grand secretary, grand recruiter, you know, things grand like that. Grand recruiter. That's, oh. that's, called, that's called a klegal. Got a it. klegal is a recruiter. And if you are a grand, uh, grand klegal, you are, the, you are the state recruiter. If you are a, an imperial klegal, uh, you are the um, national recruiter. How, like, how you, know, it... you know, Senator Robert Byrd, who just died a few years ago, senator from West Virginia. He was a Klansman back in the 1940s for West Virginia. Mm. He was the Grand Klegal of West Virginia. Oh, wow. Senator, how do you uh -huh. think the KKK goes about recruiting people? Um, obviously, there are a bunch of people who maybe might be disposed to racism based on their background, how they grew up. But how does the KKK find those people and connect with them and bring them into the fold? Uh, they meet them in, in places, you know, bars, uh, restaurants. They even advertise. They have rallies. They have roadblocks where they hand out flyers, you know, um, applications. So, you know, they might come to town and hold a rally and invite people. And so people come, come there out of curiosity, and they might like what they hear, and they go and pick up an application, or they stand on the side of the road with a bucket. Uh, and these are called roadblocks because they yeah. want donations. Um, so, and they hand out, you know, applications. Uh, or, they, or they even, you know, they have a website. You know, you can go on there and, um, and see you know, if you want to join. Um, and they, you know, they, they meet people in, in places where people like that would gather. You know, some, some place where some rural country bar or whatever. Just, just like the one I was playing in, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, got it, got it. And they were pretty open with it in the past. Like, I live in Colorado, so obviously over here, like in the Denver area, and so certainly in Colorado Springs, uh, I've seen, yes. I've read stories about rallies, like and, actual and, rallies and races. Yeah, like in a place called, uh, you know, Colorado had a had a very big uh, Klan population, they even did. even in uh, in government offices, yep. office, you know, up in the government, the governor and stuff, uh, in Golden, Colorado, very big on yep, the Klan. That's it. Very true. How, how much do you think the clan has changed? Do you have any idea how they operate now? Like, I, I would imagine not a lot of people like put on the robe. Maybe not a lot of people might have they, time to. Yeah, they um, yeah. when they do like a uh, a march, there will be some. In, it used to be they all would wear their robe, and obviously, if they go out and night ride, you know, they don't wear their robe. You know, because they, they can't run very fast. Night, in a road. night ride, you say? Yeah, that's that's to to commit uh, terroristic acts. Got so it. That's called, that's called night riding. You know, if they go it. to to burn somebody's uh, lawn with the cross, or they go to commit, you know, some act of of aggression, uh, it's not it's not easy to to navigate in your robe in your in your hood. You know, they wear their regular clothes, right? Yeah. So they, so that way they can run away and blend in with whatever crowd. Um, but during ceremonial type things, the rallies. Uh, or the or the marches down the street, they they wear their robes. Do you think the the organization is as strong as it one, one, once was? Do you think it's fragmented? Do you think? Uh, oh, it's very about it's, the KKK. So it's very fragmented. But but even one is enough. Mm. Okay, you know how, how many people did it take to walk into that black church in South Carolina and take out nine people exactly one? So it doesn't matter if you have, if you have ten thousand or you only have ten or one. You know. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the KKK has 
it's always, well, back when it first formed, there was one Ku Klux Klan group, and then there were chapters of that group. Today, there is no such thing as the Ku Klux Klan. There are mm. many Ku Klux Klans because they have become splintered off of the original. There's no more original. They're all splinter groups, but they all believe in the same thing, and they all, they, they all are separate autonomous groups. They all use the name KKK because it's not trademarked. So you might have the Dixie Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the mm. Confederate Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, you know, whatever. These are all separate clan groups. And, and believe it or not, they don't like each other. Because, really? Because, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, because they're rivals with each other. Each one thinks, you know, I'm the real clan. That's a wannabe clan. You know, so there's we're, no we're the grand imperial wizard or imperial wizard right now. No, each, each one has an imperial wizard. Each one, oh, each second yeah. has an imperial yeah. wizard. Yeah. Okay. And uh, now, now, if you see these groups together, out, out, you know, like a, at a at a major thing like Charlottesville or like uh, back in Stone Mountain days, mm-hmm. they will get along. They will hold a unified front based but, on the situation. Yeah, That's but behind behind closed doors, they do not like each other because uh, you know they may have belonged together at one time to to the same group, but then this group, you know, started embezzling money or started doing things that was, you know, wrong. So they say, you know what, I'm going to quit this group and go form my own group. And then you have all these splinter groups. That's the Got problem. It. Got it. It's the same thing. Uh, I'm not comparing the two, but I'm comparing the structure of, um, of BLM, Black Lives Matter. You know, there is no such thing as, you know, the Black Lives Matter group. There are many different groups called Black Lives Matter, and there's no central headquarters. There's no one leader of the whole thing. You got 60 or 80 groups spread out across the country, and they are not related to each other. So you have all these different chefs in the kitchen trying trying to cook the same recipe, and they all have different ideas about how it should be done. And that and that's where the problem comes, because some of them are very aggressive, some of them are more politically oriented and want to you know do things uh, not as 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 aggressively or whatever. So when one group goes out and does something and it's negative, and the press of course jumps on that. They don't say the um, the the uh, let's say the Washington D.C. group of Black Lives Matter or the Baltimore group of Black Lives Matter or the St. Louis group. All they say is Black Lives Matter, and so people think it's the whole entire group, and it's not. It's that particular group of Black Lives Matter. Got it. Got it. Let's talk about that a little bit. Obviously, you know, we're right in the middle of, uh, I don't know if some people can call it a revolution, but a lot of protests are going on in a lot of cities, obviously because of the death, primarily because of the death of George Floyd and, you know, um, like a young brother, Ahmed Aubrey and other people uh, that have been killed by police in the past. Um, what do you think, like, obviously, in the KKK, most of them had other jobs. So you mentioned a senator who was a member of the KKK. There were police officers who were in the KKK. They had other day jobs that they had yes. to use to sustain themselves. Isn't it possible that systemic racism is so difficult to dismantle because these elements of the KKK, as well as other maybe white nationalist groups and things, are ingrained in these systems, the police, the judicial system, and they are deliberately making sure that um, the black race is being, um, the black race doesn't rise to its full potential by holding those positions. Exactly, exactly, precisely. And that's why I do what I do, because you have to change the, the individual if you're going to affect the system, because the individuals run the system. The system so, yeah. does, not, does not run by itself. Are you totally on one side? Have you 
embraced other tactics besides trying to change the minds of the people at the top and trying uh, to change the system? Have you like uh, marched, for instance, or done something else uh, all to further the cause of black people or you specifically? Have, have I done that? Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I have. Uh, I, I, I have marched with Martin Luther King third, And uh, you, know, you know a guy named uh, Malik Shabazz? Who, who was who was yeah, and uh, he was the uh, the head of the um, of the uh, new black. He, he became the head of the new Black Panthers, uh, mm. Malik Shabazz. Um, he is a he, today he is a black supremacist. I don't agree with his views a at all. Black supremacists. Yes. Got it. Okay. Have you, have I do you... not. I don't agree with his views. Um, you know, I don't. I don't believe in anybody's uh, supremacy. Mm. But. Um, we we had we had a lot of uh, police um, uh, brutality and murders and things like that uh, here in Maryland. And uh, some years ago, uh, I exposed some of that, and uh, and we marched over in PG County and went to the courthouse. People got arrested and all that kind of stuff. And in fact, the guy who ordered the arrest, the state's attorney, his name was Jack Johnson. Uh, he he's in prison today. <laughs> oh wow! For, <laughs> for what? <laughs> for embezzling money. He and his wife. Oh God! Always has to boil down to money. It, uh -huh. it, I guess you kind of answered this question a little bit, but in interacting with you know people uh, like Ma Ma Martin Luther King the Third, have you what kind of resistance have you met with people from you know the other side of the aisle or who are engaged in other kinds of activism? Have you know have you found it difficult to? Um, fellowship with people like that who say, oh, you know what, I think you're taking it to extreme. We should not be interacting with these people at all. I you know what, I really, don't, I really don't care. I really don't care what other people think. Mm. You know, that, you know I, I, I do what I do, and I'm very successful at doing it. And like I said, you know, if they, if they would spend more time doing than, than, than criticizing, maybe they would have some success. Um, I, I, I have over 50 Klan robes and hoods. How many police uniforms do they have? Mm. I have one police uniform. You know where I got it? The, the, one of the Grand Dragons of Maryland. When you say having one police uniform, someone who actually resigned from the police force, or? Wait a minute, let me, let me tell you. Okay, this guy, he was the Grand Dragon of Maryland. Mm -hmm. He went to prison for four years for conspiring to bomb a synagogue in Baltimore. Oh, this is Bob White? Yep, mm -hmm. exactly. And then uh, he, he continued running the Klan through the Grand Claylift like the vice dragon, right? While he's in prison, he's giving orders on the outside. Then when he got out four years later, he took over the clan again. And a few years later, he got in trouble again, assault with intent to murder two black men with a shotgun. Wow. Okay? He went back to prison for three years. And then I met him when he got out that, you know, that second time. The man was vehemently um, racist and anti-Semitic. Very, very dangerous person. All right? Today, no, he now, as you pointed out, you know these these are just titles, like like uh, Boy Scout leader, Cub Master, Troop Master. You don't get paid for that. You know, if if you're if you're a high leader, you might get a small stipend, you know, out of the dues. But you have to have a regular job. You know, you you know you work in the grocery store, or you work in, you know, or you work you know in some company, or you pump gas at the gas station. You know, that's where your bread and butter is, where you pay your rent or your mortgage. You know, you don't you don't make the money. Uh, being a, a clan leader. It's just a title, all right? So, you, so like, as you pointed out, you have to have a regular job. Bob White was a Baltimore City police officer. He was not an undercover police officer in the clan gathering information. He was a bona fide 
Klansman on the Baltimore City Police Force. Hmm. And, 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 and he got busted doing these things. Okay, so today I have his not only his Klan robe, but his also also his police, police uniform. uniform. Yeah. Okay. He he got out because of me. All right. So no more no more synagogue bombings. No more shooting at black people. So I have a I, I have a police uniform. H- how many how many police uniforms have these people gathered marching up in front marching up and down in front of the police station with their bullhorn, uh, yelling and screaming at the police? I'm you know, I'm not knocking it. It, it needs to be done. Yeah. But yeah. don't come da- don't come down on me. If you, you know, it, you know, until you, until you show me 50 police uniforms. Yeah, like I said, you know, it takes, you know, multiple tactics to, you know. Absolutely. To, to, and to go against this. it takes multiple tactics and the people, you know, do what you do best. If fighting the systemic thing is, is your thing and, you, and you're well at it, you can do well at it, then do it. If, if, um, if marching up and down the street is your thing, do it, okay? If working behind the scenes is your thing, you know, then do it that way. You know, working through social media, getting the messages out, that kind of thing. We all need help. We all need support. But we must coordinate and cooperate mm-hmm. and not spend, the more time you spend bashing each other about what they're doing, <laughs> you're dividing yourselves. And the best way for the enemy to defeat you is how? Divide and conquer. Conquer. So, conquer. Why, so why, why divide ourselves? Why not? You know, let me do what I do, you do what you do, but we talk to each other and we, we, we share information so, so, we, so that we can have a multi-pronged attack on this, on this disease called that, racism. That has, always been, that's always been one weapon used to divide the black race, you know, disunity. And sometimes exactly. it's an external force. Even in the days of slavery, there was like the house yeah. nigger, the field nigger. Exactly. Plant spies to, you know, know when things are... Being plotted exactly. and things like that. It's it's very unfortunate the way things happen. And sometimes we're too blind to see through that. And that's the unfortunate thing. You know what? There's something I just realized now. Like if the plan if the clan operates like they have this, they operate economically. I mean, they pay dues, they have meetings. That means the clan is passing through the banking system for crying out loud. Like you can't see. Uh, organization like ISIS or, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda have a bank account in the U.S. because of the activities they do, like banks No, 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 have. they all do. They, they, they have, yeah, sure, Al-Qaeda and, and ISIS has them. You know, in fact, um, I, I know... They have bank accounts in the U.S.? Yes, they do. Okay. Really? Yes, they do. Sure, they do. Okay, and in fact, I, I can put you in contact if you want. Um, one of the chief... There were two. Two chief recruiters for Al-Qaeda here in the U.S. to recruit American kids into, you know, you find kids running away from home and going to Afghanistan or somewhere to train, uh, Morocco and places like that, okay? I know one of those two people, personally. He's, he's no longer, he, he, got, he went to prison, okay? And now he works with counterintelligence and he works uh, helping to, to, to root out this, the, those things. He was in on, on some of the things that, that were done. Um, some of his people are the ones who participated in the, in the uh, Boston Marathon uh, mm. bombing, okay? So uh, he, he's a good friend of mine now. And anyway, um, the Klan, the Al-Qaeda, the whoever, yeah, that, that, that's who they are. But when they go to the bank, they might be the, uh, the benevolent Easter Society. Mm. They, have, they have fake names on these I mean, accounts. A lot of people have fake names, but doesn't the FBI crack down on things like this or they're less involved? Uh, until, they know, until they know, until they know. 
mm. you know, until they know. I mean, you know, um, how do you know that that uh, that this? I mean, they, they can't go and check every bank account. You know, if you you know if you if you don't want um, your your vehicle to be traced to you, you you put you put the vehicle in somebody else's name. Else's name. Okay, fair point. Fair point. I mean, you've given this, you know, uh, you've given this speech about the Klan, you know, over the past 30 years in different places. You have been on all different platforms. Over the course of time, have you ever been asked a question that you weren't expecting that, you know, you had to think about that? Even maybe after that situation, you, you said, oh, I never really thought about it like that. Maybe sometime you went maybe abroad or within the U.S. on set, asked you a specific question about what it is you did. And, you know, it kind of like made you to think about it a little bit. Uh, I probably have. I'm sure I have. I'm just trying to think of what one, what one would be that caught me off guard. Uh, well, not off guard, but just something that, you know, never occurred to me. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people ask the same questions, you know, were you afraid, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I can't think right offhand, but I'm, sh I'm sure there have been probably several questions that, uh, that I didn't expect. Um, but, you know, because people have different perspectives. Yeah, uh, and and, per, and and different perceptions of of that. Um, you know, some people are are very negative towards me for what I do. Uh, others are like, you know, I never thought about it that way, but I I appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, you know, I I can't go to no clan rally, but I I appreciate you going. Mm. You know, so for those people, I understand that. You know, they if they're hot tempered or they're afraid, then no, you don't belong there. But there's something that you can do behind the scenes. You know, we, when you make a movie, everybody can't be an actor. There has to be somebody behind the camera. There has to be yeah. somebody else directing the the actors, telling them what to do. And yeah. all of these people are important. You know, we, we only think about you know Clint Eastwood or Denzel Washington or Meryl Streep or you know whoever is 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 the big star on the screen. But what makes them successful is the person who got the right camera angle the director who told them how to move and what to do and how to interpret. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. you know, we don't know their names. Makes sense. You know, just like, you know, you, you, you name me some movie that, um, that won an Oscar. Uh, you know, you can name me the star of the movie, but can you name me the person behind the camera? Probably not. not. Really. Mm. Yeah, exactly. But that person, you know, contributed to that movie becoming successful and getting that box office draw and that Oscar. So they all are important. And that's the same thing with how we have to fight racism. We have to coordinate it. And, you know, some people have to work behind the scenes, some people on the forefront, some people in the middle ground, whatever. Makes sense, makes sense. Do you think there are international branches of the KKK? Yes, there are a few, yeah. Hmm. Primarily in North America or? No, um, you have some in Canada, you have some in Germany, you have some in England. Hmm. Okay. Um, last question. Obviously, there, there's a... Lesson to learn from every experience. Uh, given your time, I can see how you know your ex, some of your experiences or tactics can apply to other areas of life, like business. You know, you're in, on a sports team. Sometimes you have to work with people that you don't necessarily like, but you have to get the job done. What are some of those qualities you think we can apply uh, from your experience in other areas of our life, be it our professional lives, our relationships, things like that? If we have to do something that might be necessary or we have to bring someone to our side uh, who doesn't necessarily agree with us, do you have any advice uh, in that regard? Absolutely. You know, define what the end goal is. Define what the end goal is. And that's what you focus on. And you may need that other person 
who has certain skills that you don't have, and you have certain skills that he or she does not have, but those skills together is what's going to get you to that end goal. So you don't, you know, you don't, you, you treat that person as your partner, you know, regardless of, of what politics they may have, who they voted for, or, or whether the fact that they're racist or they're anti-Semitic or they're, you know, whatever you're not, you know, you focus on the end goal and you treat that person with respect during that job so that you get that job done. And when you do that, you will find more times than not, by the time, because, you know, you start out, two people are contrasted. You, ha you, ha you have more in contrast than you do in common. But as you go, because you, you start out here and you start out here, but the end goal is right here in the middle. So as you both are going to the end goal, you are closing in and getting closer to one another. Because the end goal is not out here, it's, it's here. You might start out here, but you triangle into the apex. And by the time you get that close, you will find that you have more in common than you do in contrast. And you begin to appreciate one another and you learn from one another. And then the trivial things that you had in contrast, such as the color of your skin or whether you go to a synagogue or you go to a church or you go to a mosque or you go to a temple, those things begin to matter less and less because you got their back, they got your back. By the time you get there, you have a lot in common. And, and, and you had to rely on each other in order to get there. Got it. Got it. Yeah, pretty interesting. I mean, I, I used to say a lot of times on this podcast that we all belong to the same race, the human race, because everyone is human first at the end of the day before we, you know, are black or white or Democrats or Republican. So that it is possible to find some kind of commonality, just that, you know, the trust has waned so much over the years. And, you know, again, you know, like you said, with the movie analogy, everyone kind of has a role to play. So the fact that you, you, you already have 200 robes and you know one robe uh, one police officer uniform goes to show that uh, regardless of what your tactics are you are you know getting the job done in a sense and you know hopefully we can get to communicate more and you know really topple this disease uh, called racism yeah um, and just, just to make a correction I don't have 200 robes but over 200 people have left uh, I have I have flags belt buckles patches, all kinds symbol. of stuff. But, yeah, yeah, symbols. But I, I, have, I have over 200 symbols, but um, I have probably 50-some robes. What do you do with all of that? Do you just keep them at home? What do, what do no, you no, do? no. I keep, I keep most of them locked up elsewhere, off-site. Off-site. And, uh, yeah, and uh, I, I got my 501c3, so it makes me tax-exempt tax nonprofit. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm going to, to open up a museum. But in the meantime, uh, I'm going to, to loan uh, some of my stuff to the Holocaust Center in Orlando, mm. Florida, and they're going to put it on display, a lot of my Klan robes and neo-Nazi stuff, and then it will tour the country. And um, as I look for a place to, to have a permanent home for it, my own museum. Okay, that's good, because, you know, I was going to, you know, ask you about your legacy, what you want to see going on into the future. Obviously, you might not be able to do this for the next 30 years, just have you've done, but, you know, what you've done alone, you know, has to be documented in some form. And I know you talked about, you know, writing another book and, you know, your podcast. Can you talk about those real quick? Like, what, what's, what book should we expect from you very soon? And what's your podcast going to be about? Yeah, well, the, uh, the book that I wrote is called uh, Clandestine Relationships. And cl clandestine is spelled with a K, not a C. Yeah. And um, 
then there's a documentary that's out about my work called Accidental Courtesy. And the the new book, I have not titled it yet, but uh, I'm thinking about maybe Clan We Talk. K-L-A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, playing on the puns there. <laughs> that's a musician in you coming out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How was Lagos, man? Did you go to Lagos to play? When did you no, go to no, Lagos? No, no, no. I, I, I was a kid. I was a kid. Oh, God. And uh, yeah, I went, to, I went to vacation to see what it was like. Oh, yeah, nice, with nice. my parents, yeah. Because, you know, we lived in uh, in Guinea and Ghana and Senegal. So, you know, we visited Sierra Leone, Gambia, Nigeria, uh, Mauritania. And then when we lived in Ethiopia, you know, we visited Kenya and Egypt, you know, different countries around that area. So, and then, of course, I lived in Europe. So, see, here, here's what my dad would do, um, which which might might help explain, you know, my, my a lot of my travels as a young kid. Um when, when you're in the Foreign Service, State Department, right, you go to a country for two years. During the, This is how it worked back then. During that two years, you get uh, home leave and R&R, rest and recuperation. Mm. So it's like two vacations. And, uh, and then at the end of the, of the tour, you come back home anyway to get debriefed. And you, you know, usually during the summer or whatever, you might be here for the summer months, and then you get transferred back overseas again. Or you might be here for a year, and then you get transferred back overseas. Okay, so... Since the government is paying for those two vacations anyway, the R and R and the home leave, um, most Americans would come back home. Mm. All right. Uh, my father figured, no, why, why go home uh, unless there's an emergency at home? And since the government is paying for it, let's go somewhere else. Let's go to Europe. Let's explore. go visit somebody. Explore. Uh, let's go to South America. Let's go to Asia. Nice. You know, let's let's go check out something else. You know, at, at the government's expense. So so we we travel to all kinds of different countries. And then we go home at the end of the tour anyway, every time, you know? So that's how I got to see a lot of the world. And, and here's, here's the interesting thing. When I would, when I would come home um, as a kid and people, my, my, my classmates in fourth grade, fifth grade, whatever, they, you know, they find out I, I, I came back from Africa or something. First thing they wanted to know was, did I see Tarzan? <laughs> they, and they were serious. <laughs> okay, now um, in here in this country, I'd be in class, I'd be in history class or geography class, and we would be studying uh, the Sphinx and the pyramids, the Berlin Wall, the Eiffel Tower, you know, whatever, the Mona Lisa. Mm. I've been to all those things. I've been inside the Sphinx. I've been inside the pyramids. Yeah, I had a first-hand perspective on all. Yeah, that. I've touched yeah. the Berlin Wall. Okay, I've been up the Eiffel Tower. I've been in Damascus, Syria, and walked along the wall where supposedly Jesus walked or whatever. So I've seen those things firsthand. And while, I, 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 you know, today you got to stand 20 feet back to look at the Mona Lisa because somebody tried, tried to throw something on it some years ago. But before all that, you could come almost reach over and touch it. I was there then. I saw the Mona Lisa from three feet away, all right, in the Louvre Museum in Paris. Now... While I appreciated all of that as a kid. Oh, is that the internet? Uh, I think. Uh... To the Sphinx or whatever. Because, you know, I don't know. Because uh, all the kids that I was surrounded with, we all did it. Their, their parents all did it. Because we were all were in the diplomatic corps, right? But then when I come home, and I'm here in my own country, and we're in, like I said, a world history class or geography class. And, and we see the pictures in the textbook of the Eiffel Tower, the Berlin Wall, the pyramids, et cetera. It's then that I realize the kids sitting around me, the closest they will ever come to those things 
are the pictures in the book. In the book, and, yeah. And, I, and I've been there in person. So then I really, really appreciated what, what my parents have given me. Yeah, yeah. Travel and exposure is really necessary, uh, you know, in expanding the mind, especially when done as a kid. Yeah. Uh, it makes you think differently. Um, well, Daryl, um, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, I would imagine you don't necessarily give your contact out that often. I'm not sure how serious you take, like, security or anything because of the things you've been through, but do you want to drop, like, an email if you're on social media? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. People, people can check out my website. It's mm-hmm. Daryl, D-A-R-Y-L, only one R, D-A-R-Y-L, DarylDavis.com. And my email is Daryl at DarylDavis.com. Yeah, and you have a lot of cool pictures. Like, you've been pictured with, like, literally all musicians that I, I adore on your website. Well, that's what I do for a living. <laughs> I know, but, like, I, you're here with this person. I think I saw, was it Prince or, like, a whole bunch of people? Uh, Little like, Richard. Little Richard, like, all these mm-hmm. people. I'm like, wow. Who just passed away uh, three yeah, weeks ago, four weeks yeah, ago, yeah. Richard, but, um, well, there's Chuck Berry. Um, oh, Chuck Berry. Of, that, that was another sound that was appropriated. By, yeah, by absolutely. Him. I mean, that's the man who invented rock and roll. Yep. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, if you want to follow Cultural Class Podcast, it's Cultural Class Podcast on Facebook, Cultural Class Podcast on Instagram, Cultural Class Pod on Twitter. Send us an email, culturalclasspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, tell us how we did. If you have a specific question for Daryl, let us know. And see you guys next time. Thank you. Thank you.